0: Elise? Hey, dear. Well, my husband and I were on a trip to Iowa and Minnesota, and we had a rental car that I was driving. And I misjudged and cut in front of a semi, and we were actually hit by the semi. And by the grace of God, here we are. Yeah. <laughs> <Amen>. <laughs> The the semi—it ended up he just grazed the bumper on the car at 65 miles an hour for both of us. So I even got goose pimples (laughs) again. So thank you, Jesus. I tell you, honey, you you a you a strong woman taking on a semi. I tell you, (laughs) Never (laughs) never again. Well, I'm grateful for the Lord's protection upon you. That's awesome. Anybody else have a testimony before I ask Wayman to come up here and preach? The hands are flying up everywhere. I just don't know. I don't know who to choose. <laughs> Anybody else? One last chance. All right, Mr. Bishop. You ready, my friend? Come on up here. Let's welcome Wayman Bishop this morning.
1: Thank you. Thank you Doug. I am so blessed to be a part of this body of Christ and I never pass up an opportunity when Doug allows me to speak um, just to give my testimony about what an amazing part of our lives this church has been. We've been going to harvest for just seven years, but the things that I have learned about the goodness of the Lord um, would take up 50, 60, maybe even 70 years of a normal life. It's like drinking from a fire hydrant, the things that we have learned, the things that we have experienced. So I just speak for my wife when I say that Doug and Cindy and Rifle and our Tim have blessed us in such an amazing way to be in fellowship with them. The things that we have learned about the goodness of the Lord uh, have gotten us through some some trying times. But we are upright, (laughs) vertical. (laughs) So, for those of you who are on the fence about committing to be in fellowship in this church... Uh, you should fall into the grace that abounds here. And so I would just encourage you to uh, avail yourself to all that Doug and Cindy and Rifle and our Tim bring into our lives and bring, will bring into yours also. Thank you. I am so blessed to be given the opportunity to to stand before you this morning. as Doug said... Um, about two months ago, I was reading a book about the relationship between Churchill and Roosevelt. It was a very compelling history. And in the midst of that, the Lord said, you know, there are some things that I'm going to put on your heart that you need to share with the people who are at harvest. Because as the time goes by, fewer and fewer are those of us who have a keen appreciation for the things that men and women involve themselves in, in the defense of their country, in the uniform of their country. And so, um, last Memorial Day, I spoke very briefly, and the Lord said, I I believe that you will receive, if you are open, um, for the more that I would like for you to, to give to the members of Harvest. So... Here I am. <clears throat> I, I have to first of all say that um, Doug did not ask me for my notes, and I didn't offer them to him. So, uh, I mean, I, clearly my pastor trusts me. And so I would just uh, ask that you pray for me that I don't uh, violate that trust and confidence. But I also also feel like I need to give sort of a disclaimer because this is not the normal message that you receive at harvest. This is not the message that is full of the the Father's heart. Um, This is a message about sacrifice, and it's a message about the condition of the world that we live in, and it's a message about those who stand up willingly uh, to lay their lives down on the altar of freedom. So, the opinions expressed in this message <laughs> do not represent necessarily the opinions of Doug, Cindy, Rifle, and R. Tim. So, if along the way I say something that you disagree with, then let's agree to pray for one another so that there'll be revelation for both of us. So, if you would put up the first slide, it's already there. Now this we we have come to know this verse in scripture as a heavenly host declaration announcing the birth of Christ. It is it is part and parcel of the message that resonates throughout the land when we begin to celebrate the Christmas season. But I also believe there are other messages In this scripture, Uh, not only does it uh, give hope to the condition of the human heart so that peace will prevail in our hearts, that peace will prevail in our homes, and it also speaks to the goodwill that should exist between the two of us. When I pray for peace, the Lord hears my prayer. He answers, and my soul is quietened. When I am in fellowship with the men and women of this church, the goodwill that they extend to me is the will that the Father has for me to receive His goodness. So, you know, that, in addition to being a profound message announcing the birth of Christ, it also addresses the hope that should be in the condition of the heart of man. And the hope that should exist between us as we express goodwill to one another. But there's also another meaning that I think is uh, important to this Memorial Day weekend. And that is, for me, perhaps not for you, but when I examine the landscape of the world today, I find little evidence that peace prevails in the world. The history of this country um, has, since our Declaration of Independence, has been marred and scarred by war. If you just take the last 100 years, since uh, 1917, when the United States entered into the First World War, in the following 100 years the united states has either been preparing for war participating in war or recovering from war it's been a continuous process so although many of you um, may not have a powerful sense of where our country is with regard to this, this continuous uh, mindset about war we are in fact a warring nation it is simple as is that It is not the intent of those who lead us. It's not the intent of those who make decisions that affect where we are in the world, as some would say the policemen of the world. There is no intentional desire on the part of those who lead us to get us into war. But the condition of the world sometimes requires that we do that. So... Um, You know, man's inhumanity to man shows forth in a very vivid way in war. There have been unspeakable horrors committed on both sides of the forward edge of the battle area that um, are disturbing. And so I... I don't want this to be a negative word. I don't want there to be this pall of despair that falls over the congregation. But I think there's some realities that we need to face in this world. I know that God reigns. I know that. I know that he sits on his throne in heavenly places and that he's in control. And in that I find great hope and great peace. But the clear and simple fact is we are right now engaged in a war in Afghanistan uh, in excess of 12 years. It is the longest continuous war that this country has ever fought. And because the numbers are so small in comparison to our involvement in World War I and World War II and ev- even Vietnam, we, we tend to overlook the fact that as I speak right now, as you sit in peace it's your dining room table. There are men and women who are engaged in combat. Now, the interesting thing about this dynamic, and, and I, I so not want to drift into the politics that surround the dynamic of war, but this administration has chosen not to use the word combat when they describe the actions of this country on the battlefield. But the clear and simple fact we are at war with a clearly defined enemy and men and women are dying every day as a consequence of that. But we have over the, the last decade we have, been, we have been made to be immune and complacent about the fact that we are a nation at war. So I would, I would remind you uh, that as you as you pray for our nation, pray for those who are defending our nation. Now, it's easy to say, what is our national interest in this war in Afghanistan? Thousands of miles away, fighting for an enemy we know very little about, never seen, never confronted. How easy it is to forget that there is a war. So I, I would just ask that you... Um, pray for those men and women who every day are in harm's way. Now, um, on the lighter side, about um, well, in 1975, the Marine Corps sent me back to school, uh, and I was left to my own desires and devices to to pick a curriculum, and I chose. Uh, to seek a degree in history. And while I was at school, I went to undergraduate school in the morning and graduate school at night. My faculty advisor um, and chair of the history department was an amazing man whose name was Dr. James P. Moriarty III. And I could write a book about the things that Dr. Moriarty and I experienced in the two years I was on the campus at the University of San Diego. But I'd I'd like, if you will, to help me set the tone here. Imagine this. I was 30 years old. I walked off the drill field as a young captain right down the hill from the University of San Diego. Two days later, still with a high and tight, I'm sitting in a classroom with about 50 18 and 19 year olds. Now, this was 1975. So the, the scar of Vietnam was still visible on the college campus. So I'm sitting in this classroom and Dr. James P. Moriarty was the professor. I was taking a class in Western Civ. It was a freshman course. This was a Jesuit school So the podium was elevated above the level at which the students were sitting. So Dr. Moriarty walks into the classroom. He looks down. Now, he's about my age now. He was in his early 70s, late 60s. He looks down over the classroom, and he starts calling the roll. And the responses he was getting when he would call out a student's name were, were not particularly pleasing to him until he came to me and he said, Bishop. And I said, here, sir. Typical response from a Marine captain. So he looks down over the top of his glasses and he stares at me and he says, what are you? (laughs) I, I really wasn't sure how to respond to that. So I said, I said, I'm a Marine captain. He said, you get an A. So that was the beginning of my relationship with Dr. Moriarty. And the stories just go on and on. We don't have time for the stories, but if you'd like to come up to my house, have a couple of beers, I'll show them with you. So about two years later, I'm taking um, a graduate-level history course one night. It was the last day of school for that semester. It was in late May. There were about ten of us in the class. And Dr. Moriarty walks in, he takes his place at the podium, he pauses, takes a deep breath, stares out into the classroom, and suddenly these tears start welling in his eyes and start dripping down his cheeks, and he reaches into his coat pocket like this, he pulls out a piece of paper that is all scrunched up and crumbled up like this, and he reads this letter. First, he put his glasses on. The heading is Executive Mansion. Dear Madam, now Dr. Moriarty was much of a dramatist. Uh, he could he could well up emotion in the hearts of his students in a heartbeat, uh, and. We knew that something awesome was about to happen in the classroom simply because of the expression on his face and the the tears running down his face. So he continues, I have been shown in the files of the War Department a statement of the Adjutant General of Massachusetts that you are the mother of five sons who have died gloriously on the field of battle. I feel how weak and fruitless must be any word of mine which would attempt to beguile you from the grief of a loss so overwhelming. But I cannot refrain from, refrain from tendering you the consolation that may be found in the thanks of the republic they died to save. I pray that our Heavenly Father may provide peace peace in your anguish and your bereavement, and, le- and leave you only the cherished memory of the loved and lost and the solemn pride that must be yours to have laid so costly a sacrifice on the altar of freedom. Yours very sincerely and respectfully, Abraham Lincoln. Now, this is, was a letter that Abraham Lincoln wrote to Miss Bixby very shortly after he had heard that she had lost five sons on the battlefield. For the next hour and a half, Dr. Moriarty took this letter. Remember, this is just before Memorial Day in 1977. He took this letter and he dissected it. And the first thing that he took exception to in the letter, not to be critical of the attitude of Abraham Lincoln's heart toward Mrs. Bixby, but to use this as a teaching opportunity for those of us who were under his influence. And the first thing that he took exception to was the phrase, who have died gloriously on the battlefield. And the point that he went on to make is, there is nothing glorious about dying on the battlefield nothing. There is no glory in that death. I went on to to find out that Dr. Moriarty had served in the United States Army during the Second Second World War. He was a first sergeant in an infantry company at the Battle of Guadalcanal. So he saw the very worst conditions of modern warfare, and he suffered through that for about 20 months. Several years later, during the Vietnam War, he lost his youngest son. And he said, there was nothing glorious about the death of my son in Vietnam. So I take exception to the words that Abraham Lincoln used to soothe the pain of a mother's heart who had just lost five sons. So... It's important to know that in the history of this country as, as the call to bear arms sweeps across the nation and the hearts of young men as in the case of the First, Second World War and Vietnam and Korea as the hearts of young men rose up in passion to respond romantically to the call to go to war it soon was clear to them that there was no romance to be found in battle. So, um, the lesson to be learned for those of us who have the opportunity to be involved in the political process, in the public proce- public policy process, as an electorate, to be very careful about who we elect to be commander in chief. So that person understands clearly that there is no glory, there is no romance in war. And the, de- the decision to commit our country to mortal combat is one that takes tremendous insight and tremendous courage. So, you know, uh, the time for Virginians in the Commonwealth to participate in the primary has long passed, but there's elect, an election ahead of us. And I would just pray that you would be in prayer, that our country, that the electorate of our country, would be informed and make the right decision, that, decisions that affect not only the outcome of our nation, but from, for generations and generations to follow the things that happen around the dinner table in the homes of Americans across the country. Now, when I was at uh, Command and Staff College in Quantico many years ago, we studied um, in a course entitled The American Way of Life. I'm sorry, The American Way of War. (laughs) That's right. Thank you for that. And there's some things that you need to know about how this country enters war. First of all, we're almost always late. We almost always enter into a war after it's already begun. I mean, the the lessons from the First World War and the Second World War, Korea, Vietnam, um, even the wars that we have fought in the last 15 to 20 years in the Middle East, by the time the United States... Enters into the war, the enemy has already established a foothold on their objectives. They have already tried and tested their tactics and their strategy. They've already armed themselves. And so we entered into the fray late. We also enter into the fray um, unprepared. Unprepared in that, particularly in the First World War and the Second World War, and even in Vietnam, uh, we had to build up our armies, our Air Force, our Navy, our Marine Corps to meet the rigors of combat in order to achieve our national security objectives. So there's a period of time where we had to prepare. Often we didn't have the weapons, we didn't have the equipment necessary to fight the war as the war required. And also, um, we typically, as a nation, use the tactics of the previous war to fight the war that is before us. And that was particularly apparent during the Vietnam conflict. We, we were not prepared to fight an insurgent. We were not prepared to fight on a nonlinear battlefield. So it's important to understand how this country goes to war. It's also important to understand that the people who typically bear the burden of that are not the people who make the decision, not the people who write the military strategy or the national um, global strategy. It's the men and women who actually engage in the war. That's why it's important that when we elect policymakers and decision makers, that we have confidence in their ability to make the right decision about how, Our country goes to war. Would you put that um, slide up? Um, Matthew, please. Matthew 24, 6. So Jesus says, you will hear of war and rumors of war, but do not let these things disturb you, for the end has not yet come. this is a this is prophetic i mean jesus has said you know prepare yourselves to be engaged not only in wars between nations but prepare yourself to be engaged in a war against the enemy Mm -hmm. and depending on the circumstances of your life one may take a greater place than the other and in some cases both simultaneously so There's also expectation here that the Christian civilization will survive wars. There's also a message here for us to trust in the Lord, knowing that he is in control, that his sovereignty is not affected by the exercise of free will. In, um, in June of 2005, Barbara and I tra- traveled to France. And one of my objectives during this trip was to go to the hallowed ground that Marines have come to know as Bellow Woods. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of that battle. But it was a battle fought by uh, two brigades from the United States Army and one brigade from the United States Marine. And their mission was to hold the Germans' right flank as they advanced down the Marne River Valley toward Paris. And um, they were outnumbered, although they were in the defense, they were outnumbered by about 10 to 1 against the Germans as they advanced toward Paris. But they won. It was an amazing battle, and there's some great books written about the battle at Bella Woods. But I had always wanted to go there. All my career in the Marine Corps, I felt like that I needed to go there. And so Barbara and I got on the train in Paris one morning uh, and rode for about an hour and a half and got off the train in a little town called Chateau Thierry. I did not know at the time that one of the greatest battles of the First World War were fought in the streets of this little town, nor did we know when we got off the train that this town was about to celebrate its bicentennial, and everyone was scurrying around trying to prepare for all of the events that were going to begin that afternoon. My intent was to go into the town, rent a cab, drive about 30 minutes south to the battlefield where... Marines and soldiers had died in June of 1918. There were no cab drivers and there were no cabs, and we were about 20 miles from the battlefield. So Barbara said, Why don't we rent a car? So, um, mustering up my best French, I found a, a rental car agent. We rented a car, got a map, and we started heading toward the battlefield we got miserably lost. I mean, it was, um, it was very frustrating. In the meantime, Barbara's passing all of these wineries, and she said, why don't we stop here? <laughs> and I said, stay focused, stay focused. <laughs> so I thought we were miserably lost, but I saw this gentleman standing in his back, in his backyard, getting ready to get in his car. So I pulled up into his driveway, and I approached him. And in what must have been horrible French, I, I told him that I wanted to go to Bois de Bello, which is the woods of Bello, and ask him for directions. He just looked at me like I had lost my mind. And he kept turning his head from side to side like, like a dog trying to figure out what his master is saying. So I tried over and over again to convey to him that I was lost and that I needed help. So I reached into my map, into my uh, pocket, and I handed him the map. And he said, well, why didn't you tell me that? It's just right up at the top of the hill. (laughs) Barbara got a real kick out of that. So... Uh, we found the battleground, and afterwards we went to the cemetery at Bella Woods. Would you put up slide number four, please? So this is, a, uh, this is one of 16 United States cemeteries located around the world. Very few people know uh, that there are 16 U.S. cemeteries all over the world, most of which are in Europe. This particular cemetery marks the spot where the bodies of those U.S. soldiers and Marines who had died during the Battle of Bella Woods were actually buried as an expedient, Um, as much in concern for health as it was for... Uh, honoring the dead. After the war was over, uh, the United States sent a team into um, battlefields all over France uh, to recover bodies who had been buried in shallow ground and rebury them and create cemeteries. Now, this this cemetery has almost 3,000 Marines and soldiers buried in it. Barbara and I arrived at the cemetery about five after five in the afternoon. Uh, This was the worst drought in the history of of northern Europe or western Europe in some time, and it was very hot. As we approached the gates, uh, there was a young French woman who was closing the gate because the the cemetery closed at five o'clock. I was heartbroken. You know, I traveled all this way. Um, had to rent a car, got lost, humiliated by a Frenchman who took sport at my bad French, and here I show up at the cemetery and, and I can't get in. So Barbara and I approached this young woman and said, Is there any possible way that we can get in? I explained to her that I was a retired Marine that we had traveled from the United States and it had always been on my heart to visit Bella Woods, and she said, absolutely. So she opened the gate. She said, stay as long as you want. So Barbara and I spent, I guess, about an hour walking down the rows of, of uh, headstones and reading on them the awards that those who were buried there had been given as a consequence of their bravery and valor during battle. It was amazing i i 've never seen so many highly decorated soldiers and Marines, certainly in my experience in the Marine Corps. but they were all awarded posthumously. they had all died on the battle and been buried there and I immediately thought of abraham lincoln 's letter to Mrs. Bixby and how it must have how she must have felt about having sent her sons off to battle and to know then that they were lost in battle. In this particular battle, those who became mortal casualties of combat never went home. They were buried right there at the foot of the hill where the battle took place. The remarkable thing about this cemetery is that over 300 of the graves that were there were marked unknown. For the wives and sisters and mothers and fathers who sent their sons off to fight the Germans in France in 1918, they never found out what happened to their sons. They never came home. There was never a place that they could go to see... Where the last remains of their sons and brothers had been buried. That's over 10%. There was not sufficient um, remains to identify who they were, so they were buried in unknown graves. Would you um, would you put up that slide number 5 please Now this is this is the toll of modern warfare in the United States I'm not going to read all of those but you can do the math The first column represents all of those who were killed in combat The second column represents all of those who were missing and presumed dead, whose remains were never found, whose letters were never delivered, whose notification of their death was never sent nor received. We, we have in Washington, D.C., a memorial to unknown soldiers at Arlington Cemetery. And there are four unknown soldiers buried there. And there will soon be a fifth. Well, there's an unknown soldier from the First World War, one from the Second World war, World war, one from Korea, one from Vietnam. And should the war in the Middle East ever end for this nation, I'm sure that there will be an unknown soldier from from that conflict or from those conflicts, I should say. Um, I, I would strongly recommend that if you have never been to the changing of the guard at Memorial at uh, Arlington Cemetery, which sits up on the hill, uh, right next to Lee's Robert E. Lee's um, inherited mansion. That's where he and his wife and his um, his wife's family lived during the closing years of the Civil War. I would strongly recommend that you go there, and don't go on Memorial Day. Because you won't have a seat. You won't be able to see what actually happens. Go at 9 o'clock in the morning when the dew is still fresh on the green. When there's no one there. And in the solemnness of the moment, watch the guards change watch as they stand guard over these four tombs. Uh, and then, if time permits, spend about two hours just strolling through Arlington Cemetery and take note that almost every cross, I'm sorry, every almost every headstone in that cemetery either, either has a cross or the Star of David on it. And then reflect on the fact that there is a a growing number of Americans, citizens, who do not believe that neither the cross nor the star of David should should be displayed on public land. That those crosses and those stars of David should be removed from those headstones because of their interpretation or the organization that they align themselves with believe that it's a violation of the principle of church and state. Every Memorial Day in the last 10 years, I've read an article somewhere in a newspaper or, or seen it on the television where some group protests the fact that there are cross crosses memorializing fallen soldiers during Memorial Day on public land, and they protest that the cross should be removed. And in many cases, the courts agree with them and the crosses are removed. And only in Only after public outcry are the crosses returned to that hallowed ground, despite the fact that it is public land. You know, we could really do something about that. You know, I I I know this is a gruesome image, but I think it's one that we should not forget. There is seared into my memory the pictures and the videos that I have seen of thousands of Jews walking into shallow graves to be mowed down by German soldiers. And the looks on their face is, I cannot believe that this is happening. The look on their face is, the expectation that when they get into this grave that the soldiers will not pull their trigger. This will not happen to me. It will not happen to my family. It's almost as if they're doing it willingly. I've often thought, what if the masses of them suddenly turned against the 15 or 20 soldiers holding rifles Against them? What if they just turned on them? Uh, surely some of them would die, but many would be saved. And, and I believe, and again, if you disagree with me, um, let's pray together. I believe that that's, that's where we are as a nation. We, we just say when we read about these things in the newspaper, this is not really happening. This is journalistic license. It's not really happening. It's not the truth. Therefore, I will not involve myself in the process of standing up against this. And so we are led as a nation into a shallow grave and we do nothing about it. You know, I believe, Doug, (laughs) that that the church needs to involve itself in the public pro- public policy process so that pastors can stand up and give heartfelt godly wisdom to the electorate that stands before them and give them advice on how they should vote. Now, what that would mean uh, under the law of in the tax code, paragraph five oh one, c three, is that this church would sacrifice its tax-exempt status. That means that all of you who tithe, who um, present your offerings, uh, would not enjoy the tax shelter that you get in your tithe. And, of course, that would have some effect on the, the financial health of our church. When I was at the Family Foundation, I traveled all over the Commonwealth, Virginia, and I met with every pastor that would agree to meet with me, and I pleaded with them to give up voluntarily their tax-exempt status. Not one agreed to do that, and I understand that. That's a difficult decision for a pastor to make, and if my pastor never made that decision, I would stand beside him, and I would understand, but I believe Jesus would say to us, what credit is to, is it to you to tithe knowing that you get a tax break? I, you know, I can't find anything ex- in Scripture that supports that. What credit is it to us to tithe, to give with a joyful heart, knowing that sometime prior to April the 15th, we get to deduct our tithe from our taxable income. What credit is it us, to us to do that? So we need to stand up as a people. I, you know, I've often pictured in my mind, what if the church stood up in righteous indignation and protested against the injustice that prevails in our land? How things would be changed. But we don't. We sit quietly. And allow ourselves to be led willingly into a shallow grave. It might not necessarily be an accurate um, correlation, but I I give it to you for your own consideration. Slide number seven, please. Now, when I was um, when I was at this a student at the Naval War College uh, in um, Nineteen eighty-seven was it eighty-seven? We were there, yeah, in Newport, Rhode Island. I, I took a, a course entitled "Ethics in War and Peace," and we we studied the writings of um, a theologian, ethicist, and philosopher by the name of Fernando Herrera. Uh, and he published widely, although he never wrote a book. He published widely. Uh, his, the results of his study on how nations entered into war, how they conducted war, and how they behaved in the global environment when the war was over. And so he developed this principle called the just war theory. And what he said is that there are three conditions that a nation must consider every time it goes to war. And they should, be, they should be considered with great prayer and thoughtfulness and consideration and deliberation and meditation, whatever it takes to, to receive God's wisdom to make the right decision. But he came up with three criteria, criteria. One is, does the nation have the right to go to war? And he went on to say that a nation has the right to go to war if the nation is standing up, against evil and injustice. It is only under those circumstances that the nation has the right to go to war. If there is an evil in the world, if there is injustice being committed in the world, then peace-loving countries who aspire to Judeo-Christian principles have the right then to stand up and go to war. The second... Principle that he addressed in his writings is how you conduct the war. The Second World War is full of examples of evil influencing the way nations conduct war. And so decision-makers should ask themselves the question, Will I be able to send this nation to war and fight it in a way that demonstrates that I have a right to be at war and not be a part of the evil that has been brought against me that has driven me to the decision to engage in war? Does that make sense? I'm not sure I stated that clearly. but And and then the third principle is, what are the conditions of, the, of all of the combatants as a consequence of agreements that are reached at the end of the war. Uh, and, and his conclusion was that the agreements that were put in place as a result of the Versailles Treaty that ended the First World War was the prescription for the Second World War there was in the soul of the German people, as a consequence of the, of the agreements that were reached in the Versailles Treaty, that placed shame in their hearts. There was a hole in the middle of their soul that unfortunately was filled by the passion of Adolf Hitler as he led a Christian state to embrace fascism and totalitarianism. The First World War should have never happened. Should never happen. If you look at Herrera's principles for entering into war, there is nothing, this is my opinion, after having studied many years, there was nothing in the world that should have resulted in the First World War. There was no manifest evil. There were treaties in place. But diplomats and heads of states refused to communicate to one another because of pride and ignorance. And as a consequence, decisions were made, circumstances occurred that led to the First World War. So from my perspective, the First World War should have never been fought. I believe that if the First World War had never happened, there's a good possibility that the Second World War never would have. But this cancer that ate at the soul of a Christian nation made it vulnerable to the hue and cry of a madman who killed um, not only countless soldiers representing about 15 other countries, But his policy also resulted in the slaughter of over 50 million civilians. 50 million civilians died in the Second World War. Russia, Germany, Poland, France, England. Um, When the United States declared war on Japan, Japan immediately aligned itself with Russia and Italy. How Italy got involved in the Axis is a mystery to me today, but none, I'm sorry, not Russia, Germany. Japan aligned itself with Germany and Italy. They were the Axis powers, and the rest of the free world um, stood up against them. There was, this in my opinion was a just war. There was evil in the world, and the United States had the right to go to war against Germany. And Japan, for that matter. So, you know, the, the conditions of the agreements that were reached at the end of the Second World War, uh, as we all know, divided Germany in half. Germany has just recently, within the last 20 years, at the end of the Cold War, Germany has been united, but there's still scars in Germany. And our leaders should be very careful about how they examine what's going on in Europe and in the Middle East. Particularly in the Middle East because there is another threat in the Middle East that I believe eventually will bring about another just war. And we need to be very, very careful about that. And we, You know... Um, we need to come to our own conclusions about how dangerous establishing a caliphate in the heart of the Middle East that is driven by a theology that subscribes to the most brutal principles of jihad. If you read in the Koran, jihad is defined as the effort to bring infidels into agreement with the principles of Muhammad. And you do that either individually by saying, My brother, abandon your Christian ways, abandon your Jewish ways, read the Quran, know that the road to world peace is only as prescribed by Muhammad. And if you stand up in disagreement and say, no, I will not convert to Islam, I am true to my faith, then the community will be brought to bear. And the community will bring pressure on you. And if you continue to resist, the Quran says, tax them. Charge a levy against them. And if they can't pay, then tell them that they have to leave. And if they say, I... My family has lived on this land for hundreds of years. I'm not leaving. That's when jihad changes into a violent movement. That's when those who subscribe to the tenets of Islam have the right to then kill them. And that's what's happening in the Middle East today. There are Christian families who have been living in Iraq and Syria for thousands of years and ISIS has said okay you can stay here if you'll give up your faith or pay a tax if you're not willing to do either one of those then you have to move and if you're not willing to do that then ISIS has the authority in the Quran to eliminate you and your family don't be confused by those who would disguise radical Islam as the tenets of a peaceful theology. It is not. Now, you may disagree with me on that, and if you do, let's pray together over it. But I have, I have studied Islam, I have studied the conditions of the Middle East, and the conclusion I reach is uh, this is exactly what happened to the Jews through all throughout Europe leading up to the first and the second world war Jews were, were forced to convert to Christianity Catholicism and specifically they were forced to convert to, Christ, to Catholicism if they didn't they had to pay a tax if they couldn't pay a tax they had to leave and if they didn't leave Christians killed them Catholics killed the Jews there were more Jews killed leading up to the Second World War than there were during the Second World War for the very reason that they refused to be proselytized into a faith that they could not adhere to. So there, there, is an unjust, there is a just war on the horizon. It's not too late to do something about it. But we have to have policymakers and decision makers in Washington, D.C. who have the courage to stand up against this threat. And I don't see it. And I'm fearful for my grandchildren. So, there is is a term in the public policy world, one I'm sure Jackie is familiar with and probably hears every day, is that we are on a slippery slope. You may or may not have heard that term. A slippery slope is one from which you cannot recover. You know, I I often think about the Social Security Act that was passed during the Wilson's administration. There was this amazing outcry by conservatives all over the country. And politicians ran on the platform that if I'm elected to office, I will immediately end Social Security and I will replace it with something else. Well, that was 60 years ago, and Social Security in all its glory is still around. Now, there's a hypocrisy in me because my wife and I both draw Social Security, and it's really nice to get that check every month. But how many politicians have you heard say, if I'm elected to office, I'm going to do away with Obamacare? And that has, that has a, a ring of appeal to a lot of people. But it's not going to happen. It is not going to happen. The hue and cry against Social Security in 1930 was greater than the hue and cry against the Affordable Care Act. Here's another example. Roe versus Wade is the law of the land. It is the law of this nation which legalizes abortion. And politicians will run on the platform and say, if I'm elected, I'm going to reverse Roe and Wade, uh, Roe versus Wade. That's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. There's not going to be a Supreme Court that will ever do that. So what does that mean? It means like, Jackie... Jackie and the organizations that she's a part of and similar organizations all over the world, all over the country, influence policymakers to make it difficult for abortion clinics to do business because we will never overturn Roe versus Wade. It's just not going to happen. So we need to be realistic without losing hope. We need to be realist without losing trust. Trust in our Lord. You know, when I um, when I grow up, I want to be just like Cindy. I I take I take my cynical heart to her often, and I say, "The world is in a mess, Cindy. What are we going to do?" I wring my hands. I gnash my teeth. What are we going to do? It's it's horrible. And if any of you have ever been uh, the recipients for her amazing prayers, you you can hear this in her voice. Well, it's going to be okay. (laughs) Jesus is on the throne. Rivers of living water flow from the throne of God and the Lamb. My trust is in the Lord. He is in control. It's going to be okay, Wayman. I know, but it's such a mess. It's going to be okay. You know, I, I have placed myself deliberately in the presence of men and women like Doug and Cindy and Rifle. And without damaging my selfish pride, I have tried to reveal the cynicism that is in me. And I'm sure you would agree with me that much of that has come out in what I've said today so that that they can speak peace over me. And when they do that, I hear the Lord saying to me, trust me, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. I love you. I know what's going on in the world. But I am in control, and I am on the throne, and my son sits with me here. And someday you also will be here with me. It's going to be okay. Trust me. So the love that the Lord has for me, his good will toward me, is spoken through the men and women who have influenced my life to seek peace in the word. And so even though there's so much in the world to be angry about, and to be frustrated about, and to be fearful about. You know, if you're, if you're a, a parent of someone 18 years old, I want you to know that I pray for you every day. I do. And it's not because raising kids is tough. It's that your children better be prepared for the world because the minute they walk out from underneath your influence, they will be bombarded by popularism and progressivism and individualism and all the other isms that don't serve them well. So there's a a scripture in Corinthians that I want to close with. And it goes something like this. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. But when I became a man... I stopped talking like a child. I stopped acting like a child. And now I am called to live an examined life. And I stare into a mirror that is dimly lit. But soon I will know. And, and I believe that all of us are called to live an examined life. I think that, I think that is fundamental to every message Jesus ever Sent in every message he sends to us today in his word. Lead an examined life. When I saw this picture, the first thing that came into my mind is our nation needs to live an examined life. We need to take stock of where we are as individual citizens of the greatest country that, that has ever been on the face of this earth. And despite the protestations of some who will say, I will make America great again, America has always been great, and we will always be great. And we need to have confidence that, that this republic was not a political experiment. This, was, this republic was born out of the souls of men and women who clung desperately and with great bravery to Judeo-Christian principles. This is a nation that God has blessed. This is a nation that God will protect. He says, if you, if you cry out to me and speak my name, I will extend my hand and heal your nation. Yes. And we are a nation, despite our greatness in the world and at home, we are a nation that God needs to extend his hand over. So I, I would just pray that when you are on your knees every day, at night or in the morning, you pray, one, for men and women who are at war for our country, that you will pray for our leaders, that they will be just, that they will seek God's wisdom, that they will have understanding about the conditions of the world, and the role that this country plays in the, in the world, and that they will make godly decisions with regard to the future of our country because it affects every one of us, particularly our grandchildren and our children. I would also ask that you pray for men and women all over the world who have a pulpit from which to deliver the word, that you would pray for Doug and Cindy and Rifle and Tim, that they would be anointed in the truth, and that they would speak over us the words that Jesus would speak to us if we stood before him and say, stand up for what you know is right. We, we have so forgotten the definition of integrity in this country Integrity is knowing what is right and doing what is right when no one is looking. And so, I, you know, I just, I just pray for our pastor that, you know, he will be bathed in godly wisdom every day. With every breath, he breathes in wisdom. And that when he stands before this congregation on this hallowed ground that the words he speaks will bring revelation, truth, and peace to us. And, and you know, it's an, it's an easy prayer for me because Doug does that. Cindy does that. Rifle does that. Our Tim does that every day of their lives. So I give thanks for them. And I just pray God's protection over them, over their hearts, peace in their homes. And I pray that for all of you. So let's pray. God, we we are a grateful nation. We are a grateful nation uh, because we have withstood the sword of our adversaries, and we continue to stand strong because our trust in is in you. And we would just pray, God, that every decision that is made to commit our young men and women to combat will be will will do so as a consequence of reaching out to you and seeking wisdom, that we engage only in the just war to fight against evil and injustice that pervades our world. So, God, we remember those who have sacrificed their lives for our freedom and for our liberty, and we give thanks for their courage and their valor. We give thanks for their sacrifice We also give thanks for their families who mourn for them, who miss them at every meal and with every prayer. And I just pray, God, that you will continue to bless our country. I would just pray, God, that uh, we would turn away from the ways of the world and turn toward you so that your hand would extend to us and that you would heal our nation, Father. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Wayman. You know what? This verse came into my mind as you were sharing today and just really bringing forth an appeal, I believe, to each and every one of us. Of the awareness of the time that we live in, and the awareness of our nation and how our nation is engaged all over the world, I don't remember the exact scripture it is from, but it's describing the different tribes of Israel, and it says that the sons of Issachar were 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 men that understood discerned, they rightfully discerned the times they lived in and they knew what they needed to do. And I pray that that would be something that would just, as we seek the Lord, that we say, Lord, help me to discern the times that I live in. I know exactly what to do in my community, know what exactly to do in the election process, know what to do as I serve men and women all around me that I'll know what to do, Father. Amen? Let's all stand up, okay? Father, I pray right now, Lord, that as we have in many ways sought your face this morning, and Father, I pray, Lord God, that that we would go into the courts of heaven and that we would cry out for this nation. Because, Father, I thank you, Lord, and I believe that you have yet a mighty purpose for this nation and a mighty purpose, Lord God, of what you're wanting to do and, Father, that how you want to see heaven represented in our earth today through this nation, Lord God. And, Father, I pray, Lord, as intercessors and men and women that are of the body of Christ, that we would go into the courts of heaven and we would cry out. We would discern and we would say, Father, show me the purposes, my purpose and the purpose, my church and the purpose of my nation. God, I begin to call that forth. Begin to war in the heavenlies. For I call that forth, Father. So, Lord, I just thank you because I believe, Father, that the entire purpose of your will and your destiny will be accomplished, Father. I do not believe, Lord God, that there will come a day you say, well, I I, I wish I could have done that, I wish I could have done that, but I, I couldn't. But I believe, Father, the entire counsel of your purpose father will be manifested father in this earth in our nation father in our families so lord we just give you praise we thank you father father i pray for anyone that's here today that you sit here there's an awareness within your soul there's an awareness in your heart that something needs to be made right between you and the lord or something needs to be prayed for that in your life that is that it's just not right, whether it be sickness, disease, whether it's that you realize that you have allowed sin to come and and just control things of your life and you say today it ends, today it stops today. It stops right now. So, Father, I thank you, Lord God, that there will be an awareness brought forth by the Holy Spirit in this place. God, of what we now need to do. So, as you simply hear the voice of the Lord this morning, we're going to have people up here ready to pray with you. If you're a part of that team this morning, let me invite you just to come on up to be ready to pray with anyone that needs prayer today.